So today we're going to jump right back into our teaching series. And we launched this series a few months ago. It's a series called We Believe. And the premise of this series is really what I like to call a modern-day catechism. And by catechism, I simply mean the, the cardinal or foundational beliefs that define the Christian faith. What is it that we believe that makes Christianity Christianity? And we have addressed a lot of things thus far and will. We have a few more to deal with. But today we're going to address this idea of community, the fact that we believe in community. And I want to just sort of give you a, a heads up here right now that community is where we will actually address God's trinity, God the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll address that here in the middle of my message this morning. But community is perhaps the greatest example we have of the belief of God being three in one and one in three. It's not just a dusty doctrine that is sort of irrelevant for life. In those three, in the way God the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sort of deal with each other, the way they treat each other, the way they are committed to the same causes, it's amazing. That is truly the foundation of community as we know it, at least as Christian community as we know it. So with that in mind, I want to share something from, or to you, with you, from an incredibly intelligent man. His name is C.S. Lewis. Some of you have heard of him. If not, just Google it after the service. Uh, he's a famous Christian author and philosopher. And once when writing about the various desires we have as humans in life, he said this, and I want to sort of frame it from this angle this morning. He said, creatures, in particular people, so he's talking about us, not only us, but he's saying sort of the, the whole realm of everything that lives in the world, but in particular us as people. He says, they are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. And then he gives us some examples. He says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. A couple of clarification points I've added here. These are my words, not his, but... Children want to be loved by their parents because there is such a thing as love. Or we as people seek love in life, a significant other, because there is something significant out there, right? People want to be valued by other people because there is such a thing as human dignity. We long to be valued because value matters. Value is out there. We have been created as people who really matter to God. And so these ideas, the sort of premise of Lewis's thought, what he's saying here, is that our desires as people, they are somewhat of a tell. They reveal certain things about who we are as people and how we've been created and what we need to live meaningful lives. We desire certain things because those things exist. Now, even though the desires people have in this life are often as diverse as the people that have them, there are some common, almost universal desires that seem to span every tribe, tongue, and culture in the world. For example, things like wanting to be loved and accepted. That is a universal human theme. I've, I've not met very many people who don't want to be cared for, loved, or accepted. I'm not saying they're not out there, but I'm saying that's a real irregularity based on how most people function. And there's one in particular that we're going to talk about today. It's this word belong, the desire to belong, to have healthy, meaningful relationships with, with other people. Now, this is such a significant idea, belonging to something, to someone, such a prevalent idea that there's actually a psychology that's sort of been developed out of it. This goes to show you these are not just Christian ideas. These are sort of ideas that permeate the world. And psychology is one of the ways the world is trying to understand how we as people think and function. And so psychologists have identified this human condition. They've called it belongingness. It's actually like a discipline now. Belongingness simply defined says that people have a need to form and maintain genuine relationships with other people. Now I want to add some credibility to this human need. Earlier this week, I read a New York Times article that talked about how Britain, you know, our sort of cousin across the pond, has officially created a new government position. 
called the Minister of Loneliness. And minister is just the, the term they use, obviously, that precedes their, their cabinet titles. But such a significant issue, such a growing problem, okay, folks who are struggling with not having any meaningful relationships in their lives. This is such an issue that they created a governmental position to actually address it called the Minister of Loneliness. And the Minister of Loneliness's job is to figure out how to keep people connected, how to keep people from, from sort of drifting into an existence where they think they are alone on the planet. Such a significant issue that Theresa May, the British Prime Minister said, I'm quoting her here, for far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. And we know this to be true because when we've talked about technology in here in the past, which we are not against in any way, we've talked about some of the challenges of technology. And in one sense, we are more connected globally as a people than ever, but the, there's such an increase in disconnectedness in the most connected sectors, sectors of society that it creates this conundrum. How can we be the most connected but really not feel connected at all. And the article goes on to say some interesting things. You can read it if you'd like. I would encourage you to. But there's a, a, a nonprofit sort of group in Britain that addresses this. They're committed to basically helping people find connections. And they have done research, and their research is beginning to prove that like, being lonely is as bad as smoking cigarettes. Like, it can be that difficult for your body to process. And over time, can actually kill you. And we know on our side of the country that uh, issues like anxiety and depression, these things actually can rob you of your life. They can deprive you of the type of joy you've been meant to live in. And so culturally speaking, if you want to know why we place such a high value on the family, why we long to have best friends, why people join social clubs or clubs around certain affinities, why people play sports, why like a billion people each month log into Facebook and 30 million of us have our information hacked every time we do it. That's a new thing with Facebook now. We still go back to these tools though, right? Why do we go to these tools? Why do we seek these significant relationships? Well, very simply put, because people want to belong to something. They want to be connected to something. They want to matter to someone or some place. And so today we're looking at the next message in our We Believe series, which details the, the Christian community. It lays some ideas out for us as far as how God has designed us, how God wants us to be connected. And we're going to look at this in two weeks, today and next week. This teaching is deeply connected to the gospel teaching we had last week. It is the second of a series of messages. You might consider this like a series within a series. It's a, it's a block of teaching about what we believe. And this series is sort of designed to help us understand what our discipleship pathway is. It's designed to help us understand more clearly why the words in our foyer changed last week from connect, grow, and serve to gospel community mission. We made a big hoopla about that last week on our eight-year anniversary. It was a really great time. And one of the things we inaugurated that weekend was really trying to drive home what it is we do as a church and why what we're doing matters. What, what are the steps we want people to take when they think about knowing or growing in Jesus? And so through these teachings, my hope is that we would truly recognize why living out the gospel, right, the truths of Jesus in the scripture, one of the ways we live out the gospel is by being in meaningful community with other Christians, and we are bound together for the sake of Christ's mission. So we know Jesus, we get to know each other, and then we help men and women who are far from God or struggling. We, we become a blessing to those in our world who have need, whatever that need is. That community is at the center of all these things. It's sort of at the center of what a follower of Jesus is, and it is certainly integral to what the future health of our church family is built on. And so today, I want to make a case from the Bible, at least the beginning of a case, in the same way Lewis did, that people long to be in community with other people because God has made them that way. We long for relationships because relationships are a real thing. And when you understand the context of this in the context of the modern church, of the church in general, 
then it starts to make a more significant sense as to why we value the church so much. Why is it that we place such an emphasis on gathering in local bodies, being together as God's people? Well, that is because he intended this place and places just like it around the globe to be a place where people could have this deep human need to belong fulfilled. That's one of the things the church is meant to do. It's meant to provide uh, this incredible spiritual family. And so our teaching today is meant to show us what this type of love and relational unity looks like in the church. And what's interesting, we won't deal with this next week, we'll talk about this next, uh, excuse me, we won't deal with this today, we'll talk about it next week. Every Christian is commanded to experience, share, and guard this truth. And so I want to look at the theology behind why God places so much emphasis on us being a people deeply rooted in a church family, one that is marked by love and unity. And this really leads me to the only we believe statement I want to share with you this morning. We believe the relationship we share with each other is a direct reflection of the relationship we have with Jesus. It's not just a direct reflection. It's actually meant to reveal something to each other and to the world that we live in. We are walking mirrors. This is what this verse teaches us. And in other places in the New Testament, we are literally referred to as mirrors. The idea is that we sort of reflect the image and the goodness of God in the world. And one of the foundational ways we do that is by recognizing God's relationship with his son and his spirit his relationship that he offers to us, and that becomes a bit of a foundation for the way we are to treat each other and care for others. And so we read Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, but I just want to highlight the section we're going to talk about today. Paul talks about sort of walking worthy of this calling we have, and the calling is what it means to be a believer. And one of the ways that he he expresses, one of the ways that he commands that we are to walk worthy is this, 4, 3 through 6. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's talking about the way we treat each other in Christ. Because there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's a very strong language. All of these sort of one statements about how God is sort of the invisible glue that binds us together in in an unassailable oneness. That's what he's talking about here. And verse 4 teaches us that the ability to have meaningful community, the, the ability to have meaningful unity, you know, powerful and profound relationships in life amongst God's people, it happens because the church has already been made possible. Excuse me, it's, it happens because God has made this possible already. So what I want to point out here is that this is a, like an ideal. This sounds really strong if you think about it. Like God is saying, hey, be together, be one, be unified. That is an ideal that might be crushing for some of us to to process or to understand. Maybe there are people in our lives or relationships that seem like they're so beyond repair that it's sort of impossible to correct them or to mend them. What a verse like this teaches us is that meaningful community amongst the people of God, it isn't something we have to actually strive for. It is something that has already been made possible because of what God has done on the cross. Now, This is super important to note. Because these verses make a strong declaration that love and unity, this is a hard attitude, right? This is sort of the the compass that the Christian's heart is to be defined by. What I want to say here is that having love or being unified isn't something we fabricate. As believers, it is something we start with. When we are in Jesus, this is in us. And this is why the Bible tells us here to keep, not to create the unity of God's Spirit. No place here are we being told to, to drum this up, to make it up, or to fabricate it. We are starting from a really strong position of strength. Scripture teaches us this is something to keep. So it's sort of like if I gave you $100 and said keep this, then you would have $100 already in your possession. If I said find $100, that's an incredibly different command, is it not? 
You have to go out and search for that, hunt that, get it in your hand. Keeping is what we're commanded to do here. And this is because when we come to Christ, Jesus puts his peace in us. This is why the gospel is so foundational to who we are as Christians and a church body. God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, unites our hearts. He redeems us. He helps us to be reconciled to God through his son. And this same redemptive bond of peace that he has given us, this restoration has provided us between God, Christ, the mediator, between all things, right? He takes our sins so that we can now be in God's care again, so that God can deeply in love us, our sin addressed, that restorative bond, that sort of ability to, to mend the most cosmically fractured relationships. It is that same redemptive power that Jesus now gives us for each other. And I want you to think about that. On the cross, Jesus displays the ultimate peacemaking act. When through his death, he makes the enemies of God the family of God. That's what the scripture teaches us. We are at a place where we start out an enmity before God. We are broken before him. And Jesus, with his profound and powerful grace, takes all of that weight. He takes all of that darkness. He takes all of that sin. And he bears that load for us so that we can know God deeply. We can be restored to him. The cosmic mend is fr that was once fractured is now bound together because of God's goodness and his grace. And that sort of ability to have relationship, that ability to sort of take what is utterly broken and mend it in the, is the way that we are called to sort of love each other, care for each other, and treat each other. This is a truth meant to reshape life. It's not just one we read about. It's not just one we experience. It's one that is meant to have a profound application and implication on our lives. That's the beautiful side of this, that God is in the business of mending. Now, despite the beauty of this truth, if we're going to be honest, it can be pretty hard to do this at times. Have any of you ever st struggled with a difficult relationship? One of you, like one person in our church had a hard time one time in 85 with a difficult relationship, right? You know, if we are in relationships with people, it can be difficult. Even the most significant ones that we have, they can be difficult. And so what I want to say here is that perhaps more than ever, at least in my lifetime, uh, we're teaching this morning on the importance of being a people who are unified, the importance of being a people who, despite the difficulty, can actually love each other in profound ways, in such a profound way that it becomes a bit of an evangelism tool to the world. We're doing this, or I'm talking about this, in what is perhaps the most divided in partisanship culture I've ever lived in in my life. I mean, it seems like our world is at odds with each other in just about every area. Divisiveness seems to rule the day in our world today. But in this world, we are given a pretty profound opportunity to actually show what unity looks like. A culture, right, we live in a culture where the mere mention of living like this, striving for unity like this, can almost get you placed amongst the ranks of those deemed to be naive. And I'll give you an example of this. It happened a long time ago when I was pastoring in Louisiana. And even though this incident happened a long time ago, this attitude is still pretty prevalent. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was an unbeliever, actually. We were in the city in New Orleans, and I met him for lunch after a lengthy marital counseling session I conducted uh, for a couple whose marriage had fallen on hard times. And after sitting down to eat with him, he asked me what I had been doing. And so I said in a generic way, well, I just came from a, a marriage counseling session. I was trying to help two people figure out how to relate to each other. And he rather cynically remarked, well, how was that working out for you? Now, I knew him well enough to know that that you know, from a certain person with a certain attitude could be a really good question. But this was not meant to be a good question. What he was implying in that statement is that once a marriage or a relationship or a significant relationship hits rocky ground like that, you might as well just move on because at that point, reconciliation is a pipe dream. In other words, he was saying, how's that working out? Meaning like, what are you wasting your time in that for? 
And he was essentially saying that it's, it's near impossible for people in a world like ours, oftentimes obsessed with individualism, obsessed with doing what is best for self, it's almost impossible in a world like that to be deeply committed to any type of unity, to start thinking less about yourself and maybe more about another person at a point in your life. And I want to say here that to a certain degree he was kind of right. If, if you were to ask him, he would have told you that the desire to see love and unity restored in a relationship like that was strong. He wasn't saying he didn't want to see that, thus confirming Lewis's quote. You know, if we desire reconciliation in relationships, it is because that exists. He was just the type of person who was so scarred that he didn't believe it could happen. In other words, he would shut that stuff down before you could even get into any meaningful discussion about it. And that's why I say a passage like this is so important. Because the scripture isn't telling us that we have to create this stuff. It isn't saying we have to figure out how to, how to develop a man-made unity that doesn't presently exist amongst the people of God. Rather, it tells us something very different. We have to discover this. We have to know it is a truth. We have to dwell on that truth. And then we have to sort of build our lives around it. And the truth is a very simple one, but it's a profound one. Jesus already reconciled the most broken relationship the world ever knew, the one between us and God. He showed us that nothing is beyond repair. And his desire is to have peace with us. That's what that means. And that peace that God shows us through his son is now supposed to shape every relationship we have on earth. It is meant to define the way we treat people. And that is why this can be difficult. Not just the Christian, but even those who treat us poorly. We are not to respond to that. We are to be the type of people who seek peace in the areas of our life where there is turmoil. In some senses, passages like this teach us we maybe even are supposed to be leading the peace charge in those areas. And so this type of unity and community is what God has always desired for us. And the reason this is so is because God himself has never been without it. Unity and community is what God has always desired for us because God himself has never been without it. This is how we know we don't have to fabricate this. God is essentially offering us something he already is. It's not even just something he does. It is something he is. Unified, loving, caring. These are the attributes that make God, God. And when we are in God through Christ, we are given these same powers, these same abilities. And this is why in this passage, Paul lists multiple types of relational unities. You've noticed there's a lot of ones in that passage, right? He's talking about all of these individual things that sort of bind us together. It's sort of like we are now one in the spirit, one in God, one in faith, one in one in one in one in. This idea of rampant individualism is no longer addressed in this passage or talked about. That's not to say we don't have a role individually, but it means we are to think about the nature of our lives in a larger family, one that God died to establish. And it is all rooted, all of this is rooted in God's eternal relationship with his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That is the example that is given to us. What we call the Holy Trinity. If you read the old theology books, that's what we call it anyways. The three are one and the one are three. And you can see this in the way that Paul says there is one Holy Spirit, one God, one hope in Jesus. Everything is pointing back to this singular focus on God the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our unity on earth is meant to reflect that unity in heaven. And in that relationship, we can see a couple of important things. God has always existed in a loving, caring, unified community. You know, one of the first messages we had in this series was about what we believe about God. And we talked about God never not being. The idea is that God has always been. And so this type of relationship, it wasn't that God was strolling the, you know, the cosmos and found this spirit and Jesus, and they just like became a click up there. They're actually, this never wasn't. It always existed. The very nature of a relationship like this is what pre-existed the world we live in. 
And what we simply mean by the Trinity is that he is one God in three persons and three persons in one God. Practically speaking, the way the three treat each other is the pattern God wants us to follow in the way that we treat each other. It is the most profound way we can belong in this world. I'm not knocking any of the things I said earlier. They're all great. But what I am saying is there is a belongingness that trumps all of that. And having an understanding of this belongingness, I guarantee you, would shape the way we see our social clubs or the way we interact with people on Facebook or the way we treat our neighbor. This type of belongingness sort of defines all the others. How, you might ask? How do we look to the heavens to understand the way we're supposed to treat each other on earth? Well, the three practice this beautiful blend of submission and authority to one another without abuse. That's probably the best and clearest statement that I can give you about God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They practice this beautiful blend of submission and authority to one another, and there is never any abuse in that. They have a selfless love and dedication to each other. They each have this distinct role and purpose as far as who they are and what they do. It isn't like you know, a, a, a blind sort of autocratic belief system. The three have very important, very individualistic roles in what they do, yet they are bound to each other in what they do. So they're individuals that are part of a larger community. And there has never been a time when their individual desires selfishly trumped the greater good of the community. Jesus didn't peace out on the cross. That was not a beneficial situation for him, right? Jesus goes to the cross because it is the will of his Father, and it benefits us. There's some amazing implications when you look at the way they work and how they are working right now. And all of it signifies uh, this camaraderie, this deep and profound unity. What Paul is pointing out here is that the very nature of God is relational. It's relational, and that's why what we believe matters, because our beliefs help us to understand what that relationship looks like. We understand that God's form of relationship is loving, caring, and unity. It's belonging. And the implication of this for us is very serious. These are certainly not the only natures of God, right? Or it's not the only aspects of God's nature. These are just the ones we're talking about today. God doesn't have natures. He has one nature. Just since this is recorded, let's be clear on that. The implication of this for us is very serious. It means that being in community with other people isn't just something that God wants for us. It is much more than just a command. And that is because it is actually something that he is. His relationship with the Son and the Spirit is one of the things that makes God God. It's one of his attributes, one of his characteristics. Therefore, one of the things that defines us, think about this, one of the things that makes us as followers of Jesus is that we are in meaningful relationships with other Christians. We have a belongingness. We have community with other men and women who love God. And this is why we place, place such a high value on being deeply connected to a church family. Especially, here's a practical step here, especially a community group, which is as important a ministry as this here on Sunday. We see these things as equally important because you can only get so much in a room like this. You know, roughly on a communion Sunday, we will be here 70 minutes. That's about what we get on a, and that's a longer Sunday for us. So it is impossible to think that we can sort of tap into this type of long-term meaningful relationship in a one-hour worship service a week that according to George Barna, um, the average Christian today shows up at worship two times out of four a month. The most committed Christians are there. The majority of Christians are showing up once a month. That's what uh, attendance statistics teach us today. Now, I'm not knocking attendance. I'm not knocking Sunday. I'm just trying to say there has to be more than just this weekend experience. The weekend gathering matters, but it is not enough to sustain us throughout the course of a week. And so community groups are designed for us to be plugged into micro-families 
that meet outside of this room, that have space to deal with this stuff when they walk out of this room. There are other people whom the community is sort of extended through as you leave this place. Incredibly important to not just see Christianity as a, as a weekly event, but to understand it as a, as a DNA that defines our lives. And if you understand it that way, then we would probably more naturally want to be with people throughout the week, or at least to know that those people exist, to know there are people we can reach out to or call, or that we can be the type of per- person who, who can be reached out to, who can be contacted, who can be available to men and women when they're trying to follow God. We are not meant to live the Christian life alone. And that's a really strong plug to say, if you're not in a community group, you should really ask why not, and maybe at least ask for some information. We can get you plugged into one. Because I promise you, it is a, it's an integral step, a, a necessary step. Community is part of how we grow in the gospel. To grow in the gospel disconnected from community is a problem. Or to grow in the gospel without meaningful community. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. I think for a lot of people, they're, they're studying scripture, but maybe they're not as connected to other men and women as they're growing through it. They sort of read truths and then move on from the truths without fleshing them out amongst other people, without supporting other men and women to grow in those truths, or without being the type of person who can be encouraged or challenged in those truths. Gospel is not meant to be lived alone. Gospel is meant to be played out in the very nature of our lives, everything that we say and everything that we do. And what that means is we are to be encouraged by others in it, and we are to encourage others as they go through it. It's sort of a a, a two-way street, important street. And all of this is rooted and this understanding of the way God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit treat each other. Now, if you want to eat lunch, I want to tell you this. Like, I could talk about the Trinity for probably two more hours this morning. I don't even need my notes. But what I want to say here is, while there is much more we can say about the Trinity, the only thing I want to drive today or drive home today is what we're talking about now. The main point Paul is driving home here is that God is the author of all relationship. And as a people created in his image, that's us, we are called to reflect that type of oneness in Christ in our churches, and with each other. And in the truest sense, think about this, God has set the church apart to be a new kind of community. It's a new kind of community based on the oldest type of community the world has ever known. And the intent of all of this is to sort of set a new precedent, to to maybe carve out a new pathway in a world that is almost always consumed with self-preservation. Community like this actually shows us that that self-sacrifice is perhaps what more greatly defines communities. Those are the stories we celebrate, right? When men and women sort of do things at great cost to themselves for the benefit of others. Those are the stories that get put in in books. Those are the stories that we want to put on our our media channels throughout the course of the week. This is meant to be the everyday reality of the people of God, and we don't need media feeds or books to, uh, to display this to the world. God needs us. And so the Bible says the church is supposed to be a a snapshot of heaven on earth, a kingdom within a kingdom, committed to Jesus' relational values. And this is why there is so much teaching in the Bible that addresses how God wants us to treat each other. There's a lot of it. I mean a ton of it. And I want you to think about why this matters. If we sort of live our lives in a way that, are, that is contrary to unity, love, and peace in relationship, then what happens is we, we embrace attitudes that are critical and negative. The reason why it's important to know that there's a ton of teaching about this in the Bible, positive relationships, healthy, unified relationships bound together in Jesus is because those who hold grudges or those who harbor bitterness, those who are sort of angry or hurt in their hearts, those who speak ill of others or maybe complain about others. And what I want to say about complaining is sometimes that is outright, but complaining in the modern world tends to be more subtle. These are the attitudes that erode community. And by subtle, I mean this person's language is usually steeped in relational idealism. 
this person exists to sort of point out how the people around them never meet their expectations. It, it doesn't sound like direct complaining, but what happens is this person sort of exists to let people know that folks around them don't live up to what they need. They don't meet their needs and whatever it is. They don't think they're doing what they believe they should be doing for their, own, for, their, for their lives or even for other people at times. And what can happen there is you can develop a really strong bitterness with that. And we're going to talk more detail in a more detailed way next week about some of the impediments that keep us from loving well. This is one of them. I feel like it deserves at least a, a, a cursory explanation today. Most complaining in the modern world today is not necessarily direct, like a direct assault on somebody. It's often expressed in these rigid ideals that are just unfair to apply on, to people. And so what happens here is this person, when you sort of get steeped in these ideas, this negativity, these are the people who gladly receive the love of Jesus in their own life, but then have a really hard time, or maybe if left unchecked, they just refuse to show it to others. These are the folks who are dedicated to the doctrines of grace without the desire to show any of that grace. And all of this stuff, and a ton that I haven't mentioned, all of this stuff, it really misrepresents the character of God. It really starts to reveal an image to the world that God doesn't want to be seen because it's not who he is. This is why he doesn't want that stuff in our lives. It's why he challenges us to fight against that stuff in our lives, to guard it is what Paul tells us. And this is because God wants his church, our church, to be a place where others can and want to belong. In the same way God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit have eternally longed for and desired to be in each other's presence. Now I have to issue a very strong caveat here. All of this that I've said just now, I want to point out that it's an incredibly true blessing that we've never had any of this stuff in our church, in a major way anyways. We've never had a season in restoration that I, in eight years, that's been like this. So don't hear me like, I'm not like underhandedly throwing a ball out here. I'm just trying to say the reason why I believe we haven't had this stuff is because we talk about this stuff. It's because we bring this stuff up. This is a community attitude worth preserving and protecting. We talk about this a lot in this room when it comes up, and we will in more detail next week. But for the remainder of the time we had this morning, especially as we begin to think about the communion table, I want us to really reflect on what we've spoken about today and last week. Because last week for our eight-year anniversary, we drove home the truth of why the gospel has been so important to our work in the past, why it matters for our life today, and how important it must be as we continue to move forward and press into our vision. The gospel has to be what we're doing. It has to be what we're built upon and the truths that it communicates, the the very foundational truths I just shared with you about God's love and care for us through Christ, God's willingness to die for us on the cross and his son. All of these things are what our church has been built on. That is why I believe unity and care is the thing in our church because I think to a really strong degree we understand who Jesus is and what he has done and I'm thankful for that. The scripture teaches us that Jesus gave his life for us so that we could share in this amazing Trinitarian relationship that we've been speaking about between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't just see the cross as forgiveness of sin, although it is, and that's a major thing. See it as God's sort of doorway for you to now partake in this profound relationship. You now become a part of that relationship. You You are now given access to God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is because of our understanding of the gospel like this that we place such a high priority on everyone connected to this church community being engaged in the church family, being a part of the church community. It's our genuine prayer that restoration is much, much more the, to, than, to you than just a weekly, a weekly worship gathering, an important gathering. But there is so much more that goes on. And it benefits our hearts to connect to that stuff. And so our desire is that when you plug in here, you become a part of a much larger family. 
one that Jesus gave his life for, one that he has given us the ability to become a part of. It's a family we don't stand on the outside looking in at. It's a family that God has actually invited us into. And so as we move to our response time today, which will happen over communion, our response time is the table. I want you to think about this, that even though the relational unity and belonging that we've spoken about today finds its origins in heaven, the foundation of this is who God is. On earth, this is a very fragile thing. It's perfect in heaven. On earth, it's at best fragile. And this is why God tells us if we are to keep this, we have to accept this truth. We have to know this is the truth. And we have to dwell in this truth. Christ's gospel of peace. Because it is that gospel of peace that allows us to first enter into the very union we are talking about with our Heavenly Father. It is because of Jesus that we can be a part of that loving care and unity. It is because of Jesus that that, that love and that care and that unity is now in our hearts. And so before we move to the table, if, if you've not done this, if you've not believed in Jesus, there's a lot of sermons on that earlier in this message series, but you don't have time to listen to them now. If you've not believed in Jesus, if you've not trusted in what he's done for you on the cross, if you've not even wrestled with that idea, if you have questions about that idea, I want to encourage you to think about that this morning. Let us know that on that connection card. Let us help you to figure out even what your objections are to this. Those are welcome here too. Let Christ forgive you of your sin. Let him show you the true meaning of what it means to belong. Not just as a person, but as a son or a daughter of the living God. That's what belonging in the kingdom of God means. You are now a son or a daughter of God. That is an amazing, an amazing benefit bestowed upon us. Don't leave here without it. So as we close, I want to encourage you to dwell more deeply in Christ's perfect love. Because when you do, you are making every effort to personally experience and consequently protect the unity of God's church at restoration. The more this truth defines your heart, the more likely you are to perpetuate it in your relationship circles and to defend it when you see it is threatened. And that's the thought I want you to have in your mind and on your heart as we move to the communion table. As we move to the table, ask yourself, what is God saying to you about what it means to be in meaningful community with him and others? And what will you do as you leave this place this morning about it? What are your action steps to, to be more devoted to God to love your neighbor in more profound ways, and to care for your brother and sister in Jesus. There must be an action step after that. And I pray you'll use this time this morning, the remainder of it, to really think about what that is.